Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. And we're joined by a guest today. You might recognize him as the actor who played young Sirius Black in Deathly Hallows Part 2, Rowan Gotobed. Hey, Rowan. Welcome to MuggleCast. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for asking me on. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, it's our pleasure to have you here. We've been in touch with you over the years, and uh, we reached out a week or two ago. So glad to have you on the show. Yeah, it's good. Is it? I mean, what episode is this? 580, and we've finally got to the bottom of the barrel, which is me. No! We've finally got to that stage. Oh my stage. god! No, no. <laughs> um, but no, I'm re- I'm really excited to be to be asked on. Like, yeah, I've listened to the show a lot, and I mean, I'll say this now just to get out of the way. But like, I know a lot of people listening during lockdown. It was kind of a really good time to come back to Harry Potter and listen to Mugglepuff. So yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, it's it's our pleasure to have you here. And uh, you brought some great notes today to the discussion. So we really appreciate that and excited to discuss these chapters with you. I have to note to our listeners, Rowan is wearing a serious black T-shirt today. Heck yeah, you got to represent. He's, he's wearing the shirt of the band he's going to see <laughs> to the concert kind of a thing. It is that thing you sort of do get every single bit of merchandise. Sometimes ironically, sometimes unironically. So yeah. got every version of the Serious Black T-shirt I've got in some form. I think this this specifically is the special one you can get at Platform 9 and 3 quarters, King's Cross. Oh, okay. So whenever you see it, regardless of how much it is, my mum will buy it for me and give it to me at Christmas. I love that. I mean, what That's a cool claim great. to fame, though. I mean, even to to, to Serious Black. It's amazing. Yeah, I know you're the big serious black fan, Eric. So I'll, I'll take that. Yeah, all. yeah. Since since 2002, yes, yeah. <laughs> Eric, Eric, what is it like to meet Sirius Black? <laughs> to meet my hero? I mean, it's it's amazing. It's about it's about what you'd expect, really. I mean, hopefully, at some point, I will turn into Gary Oldman. That's the that's the dream. So <laughs> we'll see when that happens. Aren't we all hoping for that uh, metamorphosis? Well, you kind of have the serious and Prisoner of Azkaban hair right now, so you're like halfway. Yes, there. that's true. I need to. I do need to get it cut. Um, thanks for the reminder. No. Yes, it's uh, for anyone who can't see it, podcast medium. It's about kind of to my shoulders at the moment, but it's because uh, I'm growing it. I'm doing a, a small play in in the UK at the moment, so I've grown it out for that. We finish next week, at which point I'm going to have a nice haircut just in time for it to get cold. Well, it looks great, and I think that's what Andrew was alluding to. <laughs> yeah, I was not saying you look like a insane prisoner or something. <laughs> <laughs> He's on the run and wanted. <laughs> well, uh, Rowan, in, in addition to acting, you're also directing these days. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm predominantly more of a, a director, especially in theatre and sort of a writer as well at the moment. So we're talking before the show because I, I teach writing now as well uh, for young people in the southwest of the UK, um, which is great. Because, you know, as you can imagine, Harry Potter comes up a lot. But I've almost been surprised by how much the same references, like, you know, when I was their age, it'd be like Harry Potter, Percy Jackson, Hunger Games. Those are the same things that, that come up every week. Uh, surprisingly little twilight and twilight never comes up in a way that <laughs> is sort of interesting what 10 years later that, that yeah that's not something that's mentioned in the same way yeah yeah, yeah i guess i guess there never needs to be a shorthand for like a codependent abusive relationship uh, <laughs> there's not there's not a needing way to communicate that in uh in in general conversation so let's get your uh fandom id ron yeah, of course. Um, so I'm going to try and do this as succinctly as possible. My favorite book, I'm going to say Order of the Phoenix. My favorite film, I'm going to say Prisoner of Azkaban, though, because I feel like it never gets a shout out and rewatching them in lockdown, I think Deathly Hallows Part One is very underrated. Uh, and I think if you watch it as like a character led film, I think it's brilliant. Hogwarts House, I'm afraid I have to be lengthy. I think Gryffindor, but I'm very much 
basically not Hufflepuff. No offense to Hufflepuff. <laughs> when I was a kid, I always thought Ravenclaw. And then I did one of those kind of Hogwarts uh, house tests. And I think it said I was like, basically a joint Gryffindor, Ravenclaw and Slytherin. It was like 67% <laughs> you're that and then 30% Hufflepuff. So Hey, you're right. I don't know there's a better way to say that other than definitely not Hufflepuff. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah. And then finally, favorite Harry Potter character. I'm going to say, I mean, I always go back to Hermione or Lupin. Though, again, actually rereading the books recently, I have got a lot more respect for Harry than I used to do. Aww. So I'd say... Hermione and Lupin first, and then Harry, like, come on, fair play, put some respect on that name. He's a main character for a reason. That's so interesting, too, because Harry, I mean, who thinks of that as their favorite character in Harry Potter? But you should, kind of, because you're with him, you're in his head the most. I appreciate that take. Yeah, we were talking earlier, was, um, in my writing group today, we were talking about our least favorite characters and our favorite bits of media. Um, and one character, someone did say, I don't really like Harry and Harry Potter. And I went, well, why are you reading it then? <laughs> if you don't like Harry, then there's not that much there for you. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think you need to take another Hogwarts house sorting test because you need answers. Like that would drive me crazy if I didn't have an answer. I couldn't sleep at night. So get on uh, wizardingworld.com or I don't know, go to the studio tour over there and tell them to put the hat on you or something. Please show up <laughs> and look bedraggled and be like, can you please sort me? And they'll take care of you, I think. <laughs> Help me. <laughs> this is the perfect opportunity with the upcoming chapter to, to sort him. Yes, Ooh. that's true. Yeah. Is that the aim? By the end of today's episode, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to sort Rowan by the end of it. Okay, uh, Rowan, tell us, are you feeling snaky? <laughs> Particularly, to anything about your morning this morning? Anything? We'll see when we get into the seven words summary how snaky I'm feeling. Oh, okay. All right. All right, all right. <laughs> okay, well, great. Thanks for sharing that. And with that, we'll jump into chapter by chapter this week. And so we're starting with chapter seven, The Sorting Hat. And as usual, we will begin with the seven word summary and darn it it looks like i'm start starting off today thank you micah for <laughs> picking me to start hmm okay students arrive into the great capital g because hall <laughs> <laughs> nervously perfect Yes. Oh, bravo, cool. everyone. I was scared on this one. <laughs> I was very scared. And actually, that transitions perfectly into the first discussion point. Yeah, so we are now officially at Hogwarts. These are two pretty meaty chapters, lots happening. But I wanted to start off by asking, what do we make of the whole sorting experience? We, I ended the seven-word summary with the word nervously, and these students are extremely nervous. And this seems like a pretty high pressure situation to put 11 year olds through on their very first day at school. What surprised me the most in reading it is just how nobody seemed to know that this was what happens at Hogwarts. Mm. Uh, you yeah. know, some of these students have older siblings, for instance, especially Ron. But Fred and George somehow <laughs> get to make up this lie about wrestling a troll. And Hermione, who's you know part of the group, Harry looks over and she's talking about what spells she might need to use once they get into the Great Hall. But she, we know, has read Hogwarts of History back to front at least on one occasion. So what's the big secret here? They somehow managed to like 
maybe for the purpose of hazing first years, nobody is allowed to speak of the fact that it's just a hat on a stool. You just got to sit down and it takes care of everything. Yeah, that just seems surprising that Hermione wouldn't know. I think it's more of a writing choice and a a reader experience choice than anything else. I think so, too. What what do you think would have been Harry's reaction if like Hagrid had sat him down beforehand and gone, so you go in the hall and there'll be a hat, just put on the hat and they'll decide basically the rest of your life it's old it's got a mouth maybe he would have been relieved i don't know it's it but it is interesting like it does work perfectly to build tension if you're a reader and you're experiencing this for the first time it's exciting what could it be what couldn't it be i feel good or i feel sad for harry who just feels inexperienced because he hasn't had sort of the leg up that he would have if it weren't for the dursleys he didn't even know he was a wizard until the last month now he's here and he has to do some kind of test. And again, in front of everybody. So it does work perfectly in the writing. But it's funny to kind of look at it the other way and go, wait a minute. Nobody knows about the hat, especially you would think that some of the Sorting Hat songs would be legendary because they're right. so good. Maybe they purposely want to avoid telling the students about the hat, because if they knew about the hat prior, the students might be thinking about how to manipulate it. Sort of like Harry was like, not Slytherin, not Slytherin. Yeah, Mm. trying to get a true representation of the person. They don't know what they're walking into. Yeah. Yeah, That makes a certain amount of sense. I guess it's interesting. I've I've not read the last book for for a while, but doesn't Harry sort of tell tell Albus Severus at the end of the epilogue, like you can choose. It says the hat takes your choice into account. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but sort of all these years later, he's now going, yeah, no, like everyone knows about the hat. Everyone knows about the sorting. I'm not going to let you go through that that hazing in the way I did. Yeah, you know, I guess after Neville pulls the sort of Gryffindor out of the hat, after Voldemort sets it on fire, the hat probably becomes more legendary after book seven. <laughs> and maybe it's impossible to keep it a secret at that point. It's already a legend of itself. It's Godric Gryffindor's hat, the most prominent relic from a thousand years ago. But yeah, somehow nobody's ever heard of it for the purposes of this uh, this chapter. So what if these students don't get the house that they want? We were just talking about the epilogue. Do you think they can petition or is it really taking into consideration what's going on inside of these students' heads? And And honestly, if they're so nervous, like they're probably bouncing around all these different ideas inside of their head, like don't want to go here, don't want to go there. What if, what if? They're not clear headed when they're being sorted. Right. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. They're, they might be at their worst. I'd be scared. <laughs> I'd probably be shaking. You combine that with the first day in the Great Hall, especially if you don't have family who have ever been to Hogwarts before. This is an entirely new experience. And you're in front of everyone. That's the other thing. It, it'd be one thing, Harry even notes this, if he was able to do it not in front of the entire Great Hall. It's just a ton of pressure, especially at that age. I think the thing is, ideally, any sorting wouldn't be a death sentence the way that it's I think for the for the purposes of the book, there's all this rivalry and Slytherin's the evil house and all this stuff. But in reality, what you're actually doing is just giving yourself a a, a smaller you know, family, these groups that you're going to get to know whose interests align with you. You have the same type of personality or same learning style in a certain way. It's really a net positive. It can only be a good thing to be sorted, but it's presented as this, you know, sort of definitive. This is your identity moving forward and you will always be known as a Slytherin, you know, kind of a thing. So it's it it feels more 
rough than than what it really is. I think objectively, it's a good thing. But when you t- try and like define people solely by their house, it becomes a problem. I, quite, I feel like that's McGonagall's approach at the beginning of the chapter as well. She sort of goes, look, they'll be like your families. She says it very matter-of-factly and then doesn't kind of build... It's the children themselves that sort of build it into this big, scary thing. Yeah. And I sort of wonder, almost going in cold is actually quite nice because it means that, you know, if that happened, I don't know, a couple of months down the line where you had heard all these different stories about, okay, Gryffindor's better than Ravenclaw, Ravenclaw's better than Slytherin, etc., then actually you'd be overthinking a bit more. Whereas actually just going in, I've no idea what's going on. You're just grateful for whatever, wherever house you end up at. And you don't really think about, oh, what would have happened if I ended up in Ravenclaw rather than Gryffindor? And what's what's interesting is that we've really only had the setup for two of the houses prior to this. In the last chapter, we learn about Slytherin and then Hufflepuff gets kind of crapped on uh, and, and does in one of these chapters as well, which we'll talk about. But I was curious, do we recall any experiences ourselves um, at school where we were in front of large groups of people, particularly when we were younger? And we started to get those butterflies uh, in our stomachs, similar to what these students are going through. And I think, Rowan, you had an example from from when you were in school. Yeah, well, slightly. So when I went to university, so I was probably about 18, but we had something that actually thinking about it is very similar to, to the, I wouldn't say the sorting ceremony, but that idea of of being paraded in front of the, the older students. Um, so I did drama at university and the first kind of weekend of what we call kind of freshers week um you, we got to the university a bit early and we each had to make like a 15 minute new version of like a greek myth um and it was all to do with like the the work that you did at the the, the course um so i was part of a group doing theseus and the minotaur but the idea is you had two days to rehearse this play and you'd do it quite like comedically so it was quite funny uh, nothing too serious and then on the Sunday evening, you then perform it to the second, third years, lecturers, all these people. And though you met them a little bit kind of over the couple of days, suddenly you go in on the Sunday evening. It's like, OK, it does feel quite intense because you're performing to all these much larger, taller, more intelligent kids who have got drinks in hand. Like, Charles, <laughs> like being really supportive, but it, it is a bit like a uh, baptism of fire. Um, so that, that's definitely, I think some people had a lot of nervous butterflies going into that, but I guess on the other hand, maybe this is a good thing about the sorting is it meant that by the end of that weekend, you already have like a good circle of friends that you, you know, you'd, you'd gone through a show with three or four, five, six people and you knew you could trust each other. And then also you'd like done that thing. You'd, you got in front of the whole school or the whole uni or the whole, the whole cohort. And you never had to do that again like you never had to go through that again so i guess similarly for the students here once you've done that you're past you're you're a student you're good yeah you're like over that mountain Mm -hmm. yeah i think the only thing i can compare it to was i was in bands in elementary school and middle school so performing for fellow students was a little nerve-wracking i also did a couple of musicals in middle school elementary school i was the dog in the lewis and clark musical in elementary school and i had my own solo something about it being a rough life r-u-f-f because it's a dog oh my (laughs) god where is the vhs video do we have pictures (laughs) 
I'm sure deep in the Sims family archives is the VHS tape with me uh, performing that. Yeah, we we need to dig that up. Uh, but yeah, but it is very nerve wracking to to be on stage in front of other people. But I think the Sorting Hat is a unique level of of nerve wracking because you are being judged in front of everybody, <laughs> and you don't really have time to like defend yourself. And and what if it's a house that you know we're we're being set up to believe hufflepuff sucks in these early chapters what if you had that in mind too and the sorting hat screams hufflepuff like you might be really embarrassed by that it's unfortunate well the first student that gets sorted goes to hufflepuff right it's hannah abbott mm-hmm. yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the second one too yeah you're right and then whatever happens you've got a big table cheering for you so i yeah. do feel like if you need to turn a moment, it's like, it's like that kind of elation afterwards. That's a great point. The thing for me too is though, even though as try as like value neutral as you try to make the sorting mm-hmm. ceremony, sometimes the hat shouts it out right away. Sometimes the hat takes a minute. So the hat itself is not being like, I got to, you know, kind of, if, if you're Malfoy's like, doesn't even touch that. He's 10 feet away and it goes Slytherin, you know? So like, there's a, there's a huge difference here. There's like a, a reason why you could, you could make certain inferences about people based on it. And that's because the sorting hat, it's not, it's really not a standard process. Everybody wears the hat, but the hat itself, it can take anywhere from instant to, you know, a moment to a minute. And sometimes it even talks with you, like in the case of a hat stall sometimes it really doesn't know yeah i mean you you can literally start to sweat in the amount of time that it takes the uh (laughs) the hat to make a decision but let's talk a little bit about kind of the pros and cons of sorting i think we talked a little bit about do we think it's right to divide young kids into different houses does hogwarts sort too soon uh that's something we hear later on in the series what if certain students feel as if they don't meet the expectations of their house? What do we think the psychological impact of that could look like? You know, Harry at one point is even concerned he won't be sorted into any house and he's going to be sent back to live with the Dursleys. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's an interesting point because there is a certain level of utility to sorting the students, right? Like it goes to they have to be able to have a place to live. They have to have classmates who they you know, collaborate with closely who they're going to classes with. So there's some organization behind this. And Rowan, you might have some context here that we don't have as Americans. When you go off to a boarding school or a university situation, is there a similar system? Obviously, it's not, there aren't values assigned to which house you're put in, I imagine. But I think they do put kids in different houses, don't they? That's a good question, actually. I'm not a hundred percent sure because I, I didn't go. I didn't go to a private school, so I wasn't in a house system. But I do know, oddly, because of Harry Potter and sort of the popularity of houses, it's become a thing now that some of the schools I used to go to have now got house systems. Oh my really? gosh! <laughs> oh my gosh! And I don't quite know how. I, I think the idea there is it is a bit more. You know, all of them have equal value, so they're all named after like Greek gods or or some sort of interest. You know, trees, something like that. And it's a bit more about like mentoring, so sort of ensuring that younger students have an older person that they can a- approach or they know. And it's that idea, which ma- makes sense and is probably useful that age. It is interesting, and it feels like that's a healthier way to approach it, honestly, than saying you go to this house because you're brave and <laughs> you go to this house because you're cutting <laughs> um, that can pigeonhole kids. 
we can talk about who has it worse. It, it, I think it might be the Gryffindors. Like they're expected <laughs> yeah. to be brave. If something happens, it's like, well, okay, go ahead. Is there a Gryffindor on this plane? Yeah, yeah, yeah right, exactly. <laughs> it, that's exactly it. And and that can be a little intimidating, especially if you're first year. But at least first years and seventh years are all in the same dormitory. So there's actually quite a uh, an array of experiences within your dorm. And that's another thing that actually might be good about the sorting system, um, because where else would you interact with, uh, you know, an upperclassman that is six or, or five or you know years older than you who has more experience? Now, we don't see Harry doing it, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen where there's sort of a larger getting to know you with the other Gryffindors and with the other you know, everybody who's been at Hogwarts a while, I think there could be a really wonderful sort of creative... In the books, the organization happens around quit, uh, Quidditch matches and things like that. But there would be an infinite number of reasons why you would interact with like a third or a fourth year because you're sharing the same space. Yeah, I think there's a special sense of community and teamwork uh, that comes with sorting the students into Hogwarts houses. I'm also thinking if you're going off to live at the school, you want to quickly build up a group of friends and the house system can provide that for you. It's just like joining a sports team. You get similar benefits there. Mm -hmm. And the point system for as fast and loose as the teachers will play with points, uh, you know, it can maybe drive the students to perform a little better than maybe they would otherwise and hopefully act better. So they don't get any points taken away. Yeah, I like the points. We'll see it be abused. And I don't think it's ever used properly <laughs> um, in the whole series. But it's a good idea. And it's it, it I think, inspires you to be, um, it incentivizes you to be a good student. Mm -hmm. And it does seem like it's something that kind of gets dropped later on in the books. And certainly, like, there's never a mention, like, in the scenes sort of with adult wizards. They're never going, oh, I can't trust him. He was in Slytherin as a kid. Right. Also, it always feels like they, they, it's, it's a nice thing, kind of like your, your stabilizers riding your bike. But it's useful at this stage in, in education. And then once you're a grown wizard, you're like, oh, it, that was stupid, wasn't it? Can't believe we all <laughs> fell for that. Gryffindors are brave. Hufflepuffs are loyal stuff. Now, now it's just, we're all human wizards living our lives. That's a good point. You had a point in here too about how McGonagall pretty much just sets them up for being very on edge before they even get into the Great Hall. So McGonagall says, I suggest you smarten yourselves up as much as you can while you were waiting. But I wonder what that means. Maybe Rowan, you could provide light on that. Maybe that's more of a British phrase, smarten yourselves up. But like, you know, should you dress the part? It's definitely a sort of thing a teacher or a, a formal adult would tell you to do is, yeah, smarten yourselves up. I guess that means like, I don't know, like do your tie up and do your top button yeah. up okay. and all, all those things. It's sort of look, look smart, look proper. Um, okay. which I guess makes sense in the context that, you know, she's telling uh, Ron to get the dirt off his nose or whatever. Yeah. Smudge off of his That yeah, makes yeah. so much more sense because reading for, through an American lens, I'm like, she's telling them to rack their brains and try to think up all the most useful information to be as smart as they can for oh. whatever they're about to walk into. Which Hermione then does. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> to smarten yourself up. Okay. Okay. So it's like kind of like straighten up, you know, straighten your tie. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Rowan, you had a, a really good point here when McGonagall mentions that your house will be something like your family that that might set off some alarm bells for Harry, given uh, how he was raised. Hundred percent, he's probably sat there going, "Oh my god, what's what are they going to do here? What's the score?" I'm so glad you brought that up because Harry's only basis for comparison is the Dursleys. Full stop. And there's two moments in this chapter 
I think, where he compares it to the Dursleys. So when they get in the Great Hall, he says the Dursleys' entire house could fit in here. It's like, it's funny that he's using that as a unit of measurement, but it's literally only his, his only point of reference is of how big something is, is how big the last place he lived was. And it's very endearing to see Harry kind of compare it to that. Um, and when he sees the sorting hat, he says, oh, Petunia wouldn't have let it in the house. It's that ragged and dirty. <laughs> um, and it's it's funny, though, because having done the first few chapters of the book, you like you understand who these characters are. And so it's also a good frame of reference for us to you know further characterize the things at Hogwarts that are strange and unusual. Something that I wanted to talk about was when Harry puts on the hat and the hat says that Harry has talent. Oh my goodness, yes. What do we think the hat is specifically referring to here? Bellyarmus, Harry's mastery of that spell, I think. I think it's straight in. It's like, oh, I get it. I get it. <laughs> he senses the Expelliarmus is real good in Harry. I, I, It's an interesting comment. Like what first jumped to my mind was maybe his Quidditch talent. Oh, Just seeing yeah. his physical abilities, maybe. True. That's a good call out. I was thinking that the hat could see Harry's defeat of Voldemort as an infant. Which definitely involved skill. Right. And <laughs> was not at all due to a prophecy and an accident. Yeah. Well, <laughs> still, though, it, it had to come down to the choice that Voldemort made and all of the sort of confluence of events that led to Harry being able to survive that event, right? You could have said, like, there's luck. Oh, my goodness, yes. (laughs) Yes. You're the most lucky student I know. But I'm just imagining the hat being like, hey, I sorted that guy when he came to Hogwarts. He was real messed up. And this guy, like, yeeted him out of existence as an infant. (laughs) I was going to say, I I hope the hat says this to everyone, like, talent am i gonna say yes yeah. if it just sort of goes like oh unlucky mate like just you're gonna struggle here then i think that put you off a bit more <laughs> to that point though laura do you think the hat could be sensing voldemort the part of his soul that's in harry and that's what he's picking oh. up on and saying talent yeah oh my goodness yes Ooh. i think that's always been a theory right because the hat tells harry you would do really well in slytherin putting you in Slytherin would put you on the path to greatness. And I think it's because the hat is picking up on the piece of Voldemort's soul that's living in Harry's head. Yeah, I think we're meant to believe that in book two, too, when Harry confronts the hat and the hat doubles down and is like, yeah, no, yeah. You're, you'd be a great Slytherin. Um, I think, too, like knowing about uh, Harry's interactions with Dudley, he is kind of quick witted in certain moments and he is able to like really quickly outsmart Dudley. I know it's not this huge feat, but even I am surprised sometimes by Harry's like witticisms, comebacks. Like I think he's got really a knack for if given the courage, he really does defend himself pretty well. And if given time, he really does, um, you know, succeed in in a lot of things that he attempts. So there is there is a way to describe that and it is talent. But it's so interesting to think about what specifically the hat can see or is looking at because we really don't know. And I like it being vague, but, you know, it, it, it fosters this type of discussion. But it's really interesting to see, like, is he just looking at Voldemort, who was ridiculously talented, did great things, terrible things, but great. Two points here. One, I wonder how much of it is about going, oh, I remember your, your parents. They were really talented. Mm-hmm. So you'll be talented as well. It's that sort of thing. But I also wonder in terms of that Slytherin, half to greatness versus Gryffindor. 
I feel like Slytherin, because of the cunningness, you always get kind of good leaders and then lots of followers, like sort of, you know, Riddle and his Death Eaters and then Lucius and then obviously Malfoy and Crabbe and Goyle. And I wonder if the idea that if Harry was in that house, then effectively it'd be him and Malfoy and everyone else would be following them. But in Gryffindor, he's actually surrounded by lots of other strong-minded people who sort of, and, and this is quite good in the books, is that generally throughout the books, he's quite unpopular and they'll have a go at him and they won't be happy with him. And so actually that might be what's best for Harry's development is him being a bit unpopular, him being in the middle of the pack as opposed to being the cool special one in Slytherin. That's a great point. I really like that. Yeah, that is. Yeah. Well, Andrew, you you love the Sorting Hat so much that you want to give it its own spin-off television series. I love this. This is Can I steal this and pitch it, please? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, I I was so excited writing this and this is a new recurring segment within chapter by chapter called Max that. <laughs> In this new chapter-by-chapter segment, if we come across a line, a scene, an element that makes us think, huh, I wish I knew more about that, or, huh, I wish we spent more time exploring that, we have this segment called Max That, in which we pitch a TV series for HBO Max that can expand on what we're looking at. We're doing this segment because a Harry Potter spinoff TV show on HBO Max is inevitable, so here are some ideas for Warner Brothers to pursue. This show is called The Sorting Hat. A Wizarding World Tale. So this is a mini-series in which we discover the origins of the Sorting Hat, and we'll see how Godric got the hat. Maybe it has an interesting story, or maybe it's just a random hat he had lying around or just found on the street and was like, oh, nice hat. Um, we would learn how the founders equally placed their intelligence in the hat, how they gave it legitimacy so it could read minds, <laughs> and um, how they worked out the kinks of the hat. It could not have been perfect originally. I'm imagining that in its first couple of years, the sortings were often wrong and it caused absolute mayhem at Hogwarts. For example, like humble would be Hufflepuffs are sent to Slytherin and they don't fit in. And they, <laughs> this causes a nightmare uh, child development scenario. And we can also learn that the hat itself once had an ex- existential crisis and wanted out of the sorting hat gig. But Katja gave it a talk about its importance. <laughs> Ever since then, it's believed in its purpose and it's been okay. Uh, in its role and then also like is the hat fully sentient can it think on its own can it just like run off and do what it wants i I have lots of questions about the hat and i would love for them to be answered in the sorting hat a wizarding world tale too you know andrew as the uh, creator of this idea i'm wondering when you talk about the hat having an existential crisis and wanting out of the gig do you think that was a crisis of conscience because the hat itself wasn't sure if it was being used to sort too soon. Ooh, I wasn't thinking of it that way. But yeah, I could see that being an episode of the show being like, I don't want to sort them this early. Dumbledore, leave me alone. Take me out of this, Godric. I'm creating a lot of mental health issues for these students by sorting them this soon. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But I think fans, us fans, would really love this type of TV show too, because it's all about the Hogwarts houses, which people are absolutely obsessed with. And we've seen Wizarding World Inc. really lean into the houses more and more over the years. I think in the early days, it it was like just Gryffindor merchandise you could buy. But now they really lean into all the different house merchandise. And we'd also get to see the founders and we'd learn more about it, about what it means to be in each of the houses. 
which would really excite fans. So this ticks a lot of boxes. Yeah. I agree. The question I have to ask Andrew is, who would you cast to play the voice of the sorting hat in this? You, Rowan, of course. You. You. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'll say that. <laughs> How about David Attenborough? <laughs> we... Yes. <laughs> Let me Google famous British actors. <laughs> <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch. Ian Oh, Ian McKellen, yeah, of course. Cumberbatch, ooh. He would be good. Is this live action or is it animated? Because Live action. Okay, as you were describing it in my head, and I think it's when you talked about the hat running off, I'm seeing it as an animated feature. Oh. <laughs> because I can see, you know, quirky things like that happening in animation. Well, I mean, it's still magic, so I suppose that could happen in, in a live action but for some reason it feels like this could be very comical yeah in an animated setting yeah that perfectly transitions into what would be my idea for an hbo max series which is a lego stop motion uh sort of adventure (laughs) and the reason this is on my mind is i'm at my girlfriend's uh family home and she has this old harry potter lego set that is harry potter getting sorted and oh, oh I love a, that one. Oh, wow. It has a spinning wheel that is all the houses, and it's Harry on his little on the on the stool, and he spins around too. And it's the most nuts thing. I've never seen this before as a Lego set, but it would be funny to see, you know how they do Lego stop motion. Uh yeah. it'd be funny to see a series on that based on that. That would be cool. If they don't do it, you make the series with that little Lego set. Yeah, I'm going to take mm-hmm. apart this Lego set and get it going. I would love to see like the hat just like going back and forth and bantering with Dumbledore like behind the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> just bothering him all day. Or just criticizing him too. Oh, yeah. He'd be like, sometimes I think we saw it too soon. Well, then change it. <laughs> like, yeah, idiot. Nobody says you can't do that. Yeah. I can also see the hat having some job dissatisfaction because it's like... <laughs> I literally have one day a year that I have work to do. What do I do the other 364 days? Oh, we already know this, though. He prepares the next year's song. (laughs) He has to write one hit UK Wizarding single every year. And it's it's tough. Takes 12 months. Do you think they've done that? Do you think they've, they've recorded it for sort of like Christmas, Christmas number one or something? <laughs> they've done the, the, get the, the sewing hats. Oh, that would be great. That'd be fantastic. Christmas is all around me. Wait. Oh, yeah. The Sorting Hat should have a Christmas album. That would be so nice. Yeah. Just like the Backstreet Boys are releasing a Christmas album <laughs> this Christmas. It's about time. Andrew, I think you should record Christmas carols as the sorting hat and we should release it as the sorting oh. hats number one christmas hits i love it if <laughs> if somebody would like to write a sorting hat christmas song i'll write then, it <laughs> okay write it micah i'll I'll do my best we'll find a nice holiday jingle is this gonna rival don't let it be july <laughs> maybe it might it just might all right uh so one of the other uh things I wanted to bring up in this chapter happens at the very end of it. Uh, We see Harry really having one of his first dreams. He has one a little bit earlier on in the book, uh, but it's about his parents. I'm curious what this one may tell us about what is going to happen towards the uh, tail end of this book, but maybe also as we look ahead uh, to future books as well. And Uh, The quote is, he was wearing Professor Quirrell's turban, which kept talking to him, telling him he must transfer to Slytherin at once because it was his destiny. 
Harry told the turban he didn't want to be in Slytherin. It got heavier and heavier. He tried to pull it off, but it tightened painfully, and there was Malfoy laughing at him as he struggled with it. Then Malfoy turned into the hook-nosed teacher Snape, whose laugh became high and cold. There was a burst of green light, and Harry woke, sweating and shaking. Obviously, I think there's stuff that we could draw upon from later on in Sorcerer's Stone, but I think some of this could also tie to Half-Blood Prince. Yeah. And Deathly Hallows. I mean, just just the hat tightening around his head when he tried to pull it off is very Slytherin's locket uh, to me. Uh, there's a lot of Horcruxy stuff going on here, uh, which is very, very, very interesting to me. Yeah, I, I thought about particularly when Malfoy turns into Snape and then there's a flash of green light reminding me of the astronomy tower when Dumbledore gets killed. Oh, oh wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I it's interesting how the book has like right out the gate started blaming Snape for Harry's scar hurting and things like that. So I, I'm sure that that's why Snape is so centered in this dream. But the idea that the turban is talking to Harry is very much like what Quirrell's currently going through. Uh, with, you know, we know his situation with Voldemort. And then also the with the Horcrux connection, you know, is the Voldemort part of Harry telling him he should be in Slytherin? Because there's like bias there for, you know, and pride for his destiny and his house. Is he talking literally about his own ancestry when Harry has this dream? It's totally not. There's a lot to consider. There's a ton of angles here. Yeah. Talking about the turban, talking to Harry, I'm thinking it's like a real-time look at what's happening between Voldemort and Quirrell. Yeah. I was going to say, is it sort of the... I'm trying to think of other times he dreams in the early books, because obviously from book five onwards, it becomes such an important part of his relationship with Voldemort. So is that kind of foreshadowed here? Because this is the closest we get between them until he's resurrected, isn't it? I think you're right. I mean, dreams are just such a perfect low stakes way to write foreshadowing, but it's executed so well. I mean, there's this one, there's, I think in book two, there's one where he's in the zoo or he's in a cage and and Dobby is like uh, talking with him through the bars. Just all of the dreams are always dripping with uh, meaning and impactful foreshadowing. Well, and what I think is so clever about this, and we had a, Similar situation, though, it wasn't a dream sequence when we talked about um, Harry at the zoo earlier on in the book where he is speaking with the snake and I think his leaders or leaders, readers, uh, we are intended to believe that Harry is just totally personifying when really there's something deeper going on there in that Harry speaks parcel tongue. And here, I think we're intended to see this as a stress dream, right? It really reads as a stress dream. Harry is feeling a lot of imposter syndrome. He is, you know, very overwhelmed, although he's happy to be in this new world. Um, but he doesn't quite know his place in it yet. So it seems totally natural for him to have a dream like this. But when you consider the events that come later in this book and in future books, there is so much foreshadowing laid out here that you wouldn't pick up on the first time reading this through. Definitely. So let's talk about some odds and ends. Laura, you had some good ones. Yeah. So uh, something I picked up on that I I guess had never jumped out at me before, but it does now. Um, Fred and George catcalling Lavender Brown after she gets sorted into Gryffindor. <laughs> She's walking <laughs> She's, over to the table. <laughs> She's the first Gryffindor, though. They're very excited and they're 13 and she's 11. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, 
I, it's it's just an interesting descriptor. Yeah. Right. I'm yeah. not I'm not assigning a value to it. It's just really yeah. interesting reading it through the lens of, you know, being in my mid 30s. Also, you know, the time that this was written in versus where we are now, it was just something that I noticed more now. If they if they had howled uh, like a wolf at her, that would have been a lot of foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> it's OK, but I'll, oh, my God, Micah. <laughs> I saw that Percy admitted that Dumbledore is a bit mad, which is kind of funny to hear after Vernon calls Dumbledore (laughs) a crackpot old fool. So Dumbledore is kind of being set up in these early chapters to be a nut. And yet these descriptions of him don't really stick to Dumbledore later in the series. At least I don't think so. Well, depending on who you talk to, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this superficial talk about whether Dumbledore is... Nutty is goes by the wayside because people are actually trying to accuse him of either not uh, being able to be a headmaster or not being able to be the leader of resistance. And, you know, you have to kind of set all that crazy talk aside and be like, no, he's my man. And then also, like, as a reader, you're seeing these key scenes between Harry and Dumbledore. And it's like, okay, you know, he's a thoughtful, nice guy. Like, yes, we criticize him, but he's not nutty or a bit mad. But he is, too. Yeah. All the best people are. He's unique. <laughs> and it is interesting because even though Percy does concede here that, yeah, he is a bit mad, he also says, what are you talking about? He's the greatest wizard of all time. It's really funny to see Percy's admiration for Dumbledore at this stage, given what we know comes later in the books and Percy's later affiliation with the ministry. Also, Seamus says his mom didn't tell her husband, that she was a wizard until after they were married. Seamus's dad had a nasty shock, but I don't know. I think that would kind of be cool, right? What's the well, issue with that? Other than not coming clean the, all, Yeah, all relationships are trust-based, right? Uh, yeah. And it's kind of like, I know exactly how this went down. It was like, sweetie, so you love me, right? And once you're married to somebody, you're like, yes, honey, what did, what happened? What did you do? And she's like, actually, I'm a witch and our kid's going to be banging things around and there's all this magic, all these noises in the house more than usual. It's a lot to put up with. It's a, I think it's a significant. But when is the right time to tell somebody? You know, it's just like, when is the right time? I'm thinking third date, third or fourth date. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say probably date. before you get married, not because there's anything wrong with it, but because that's a pretty key part of your self that you're not yeah. sharing with the person that you're going to spend the rest of your life with. Well, I can see that being heavily regulated. I can see the government having a very specific when do you tell somebody. Oh. Because if you think about the statute of secrecy, you actually just can't tell everybody on the first date that you're a witch or wizard. <laughs> Although they'd probably think you're crazy um, and not think another day on it. But yeah, you have to be like in a serious enough relationship that telling the person doesn't risk exposure, maybe. Right. But there has to be some point between serious relationship and marriage where the (laughs) government's like, yeah, okay, you can tell them. Pretty interesting. (laughs) But that's probably one of those little intricacies we may never get an answer to. Speaking of the family talk that happens... Um, at the table, Neville says that his family thought he was, quote, all muggle, which I thought was interesting because we know that really the term for that is squib. So did the idea of squibs just not 
come about until book two? Was it not conceived of at this point? Or was this a writing device to get the point across without doing a ton of info dumping about what squibs are? I think it's that too. Yeah. It could just be a friendlier way to explain it to a child as well. That's all I think is going on. Book two is all about those dirty words, right? Like mudblood and squib and all that kind of deepening of the world. All muggle works perfectly for the current, um, you know, verbiage. But it's interesting too to see how Neville kind of either whatever relationship he has with Frank and Alice Longbottom is not at all part of this whole discussion of his larger family. I wonder if at that point he has been introduced to his parents, if he's, you know, kind of what the thing is there, because this is all about his gran and and her, you know, brothers and sisters that are hanging him out of windows by his ankles um, and not at all about his parents who were the strongest, you know, and and best sort of aurors of their age. There's no way he would be all muggle if you take into account who his direct parents were. It's a good point. Uh, we also get introduced to the house ghosts. Uh, everybody except for the gray lady uh, and Harry actually asks nearly headless Nick specifically about the bloody Baron and why he has that silver blood all over him. Um, so maybe that's why we don't get told about the gray lady because it's her blood. Yeah. Oh, it's so cool. That's (laughs) so good. And talk about a book seven reference, you know, in, in book one, it's actually Seamus that asks, uh, nearly had this Nick about the blood. Oh, is it? But, uh, yeah, but, but I mean, we know how, how important that story is. It doesn't get a payoff for a very long time. And Nick is so polite. He's like, I've never (laughs) asked him. And it's like, how? How many hundreds of years have y'all been floating around this castle and it's just never come up? They don't interact. Everyone's terrified of the Baron. But like, that's the funny thing is like, and this comes up with Peeves too, when they talk about uh, getting the Baron. Everyone kind of maybe senses without knowing that the Baron's story is more tragic and more sort of evil than your typical ghost. Like, how did you become a ghost type story? They give him a wide berth and I think he sort of exudes that maybe it's his his own like unhappy demeanor because of what he has done kind of a thing you can't also exercise him so he sort of if you found out what he did it'd be like well i sort of just have to stay hanging around you for the rest (laughs) of eternity it's yeah it's not a happy situation either way plus the gray lady wouldn't hang out with him obviously right we also get the first instance of harry's scar hurting Uh, He thinks it is because of Snape, who's staring directly at him. But we obviously learn later on that it is due to Quirrell and Voldemort being on the back of his head. Can I mention as well, because there are a couple of things that I picked up on reading this. I mean, first of all, because I know a lot of people talk about the writers, you know, we've talked a lot already about foreshadowing, world building, all those big things. I just want to draw attention to all of Harry's peers who are never mentioned or seen again. I know. The rest of the time. <laughs> We've got just, just the ones I picked up on. We've got Morag McDougall, Sally Ann Perks, Moon, Lisa Turpin. I sort of go, you know, um, the writer sort of, you know, she wrote lists of all these people in, in Harry's year, all the stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Never, never mentioned in like a potions class or Defense Against the Dark. They never come up to him and go, oh, Harry, how's it going? Do you want to go see your ball or whatever? Just, they vanish. Vanish for the rest of the 
however many thousands of words are in the are in the books. I think that's an amazing point. What does that say about <laughs> Harry? Come on, Harry, keep up with your fellow classmates. <laughs> so unsociable. Maybe that's how they prefer it. You know how hard it is to keep your head down in a school of all magic where all these things are always happening? They just put their head down. They just did their studies. They got out of Hogwarts. And you know what? They made something of themselves. They, they're not seeking the glory, worthy, noteworthiness of a, a J.K. Rowling Harry Potter book. Or maybe there's a reason. Maybe there's a reason they've been scraped from the rest of the the books. Yeah. Um, yes. What's the, the the fan theory behind that? Yeah, Lisa Turpin was a very very dark person. Well, I think the common thread here is that those. I think most of those characters are Ravenclaws and Hufflepuffs. We mostly yeah. hear about Gryffindors oh. and Slytherins. Oh, here we go again. That's a fair point. Here we Good go point. again. Yeah. Are they are they in puffs? Is that we just need a sort of puffs in another play? book just about those characters for the the seven for the stories right this is ravenclaw and hufflepuff erasure and i will not stand for it <laughs> uh too late oh, i i will say the name i was most surprised to see was actually blaze abini uh who comes oh. up much later on in the series so well now yeah. there's an example of probably you know the author consulting the list going okay i'm gonna have somebody else here who's you know in that house and has been with them the whole time but it won't seem new. Quick question, which is obviously Dumbledore doesn't tell the prefects about the Philosopher's Stone or why it's going on. There's a line Percy says, oh, I, he'd have at least have told us as prefects. And I was just wondering why Dumbledore's done that. But surely he thinks it's fairly secure that he'd at least tell the prefects going, oh, look, this is why it's in there. Don't tell anyone. Well, yeah, especially when Dumbledore's like, the third floor corridor to the right is strictly forbidden. Like, as soon as you say that, of course students are going to try to get close and try to see what's up over there. So I think that's all the more reason to tell the prefix so they can actually be prepared for the inevitability of students trying to go to that door. Yeah. And, you know, if he wanted to protect that information, because again, the prefects are still teenagers, right? Um, he could just be like, yeah, there's a three headed dog we're having to store in there. It's very dangerous. Please keep the kids away from it. <laughs> but even that, you, the word would get out and people would be like, three-headed dog, where? I yeah. Yeah, I've heard about one that. of those since Greek mythology. Right, right. That's because who of the students will actually be interested in a philosopher's stone? Because they're all so young. They're like, why would I want a, like, a stone to live forever? I'm, I'm 11. I'm fine. <laughs> I'm already going to live forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an interesting point. It's just about the secrecy surrounding Like, you really can't tell anyone and you shouldn't have to it's it's above all their pay grades finally because uh, i know you've already been talking about uh, some dumbledore uh issues with dumbledore throughout these books um i picked up on his line after they do the lovely funny scene of singing the hogwarts school anthem and the weasley twins do it to the, the funeral march uh, and dumbledore says that music is more magical than anything we do here and i just thought well if only he had the power to include music on the curriculum you know yeah there's <laughs> always that thing of oh, they could do english maths whatever but they don't do they don't do music yeah what are they? they've got the, the the choir and prisoner of azkaban we have to work in a double door lie here somewhere he's he's lying to the students about what's going on in that corridor maybe maybe we can get a sound effect andrew oh uh, that's true please harry trust me you liar <laughs> <laughs> okay so that nice. we're up to three now i think that's so good, Andrew. Okay. Oh, thanks. Thanks. I added a little reverb, so it sounded like Dumbledore was in Hogwarts. 
Okay, let's move on to chapter eight, the potions master, and let's kick it off with the seven word summary. Eagerly. Harry. Begins. Classes. With. Angry. Teacher. <laughs> teacher? Teacher? Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. Trying to get in there that Snape really has a, a damn chip on his shoulder, doesn't he? Indeed. Yeah, we're definitely going to talk about that. But uh, this is the first week of classes and a lot happens. We get introduced to a lot of different professors. And I just want to start off by asking, do we remember what it was like to return to school for that first week of classes? I think- it's exciting. Maybe initially there was a little bit of anxiety, but after that, yeah, I think it was exciting. Most people excited to go back to school, see your friends. You went to Walmart, you got some new clothes for the school year ahead, you got a new notebook, it's fresh, you got some new pens. There's a exciting feeling of, of newness when you uh, start the school year. You see your friends again, you see your teachers again, been a few months, everybody's still... Uh, you know, got their uh, here in America. Got their uh, summer tan. It's a uh, it's a good time. I like the start of the school year. Yeah, it's nervous excitement, right? That's mm -hmm. what it always was for me. But I will say, um, you know, for Harry, he's starting a new school year, but it's in a completely new school, new environment. He's surrounded by new people, so it's not the same as you know his experience returning to Hogwarts in year two and onward. Right. There's, I think, a lot of nervousness here and where I'm able to identify. I don't think I've ever talked about this on the show. Um, when I was 11, which just feels very apropos to today's discussion, um, we moved states. So I moved to a completely new state, which meant I was starting middle school, um, the sixth grade in a completely new state. I had no friends. I didn't know anybody. And your girl threw up on the first day of sixth grade because she was so nervous. Laura, oh, nice. oh my goodness. No, it's anybody? Funny. Where did you throw up? No, not on anybody, but like okay. in my homeroom classroom. Imagine if Harry had done that during potions. That would have been. I know. <laughs> you, how many points do you think Snape would have taken then? A million. <laughs> A million points. But it was so I have to worth clean it, it up. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, the, the thing for me about back to school was always about the smells, the smell of a new notebook, <gasps> yes. the smell of the classroom, which which actually probably just even before COVID comes down to like what cleaner they were using between yeah, yeah. between days. But like being in a classroom, the complete and utter silence, the lights off. If you're the only one in there, either before or after class, there's just something about it. I can go back there immediately in my mind right now. But thinking about the so my in when reading this chapter of the books is thinking about how all of these classrooms and areas smell like the greenhouses, like all these different locations that have all of these exciting, magical purposes and the spells they're working on and things. It's just It just must be amazing. I mean, there's a reason we all wanted to go to Hogwarts and it's, and it's for things like this that it's all described in such a really beautiful, lush way. Definitely. Yeah. And, and to, complicate things for Harry even more. I mean, he's in a brand new building and things move and he doesn't, it's almost like they need yeah. a map to know. I mean, he gets one later on huh. in the series, obviously. But If only something like that existed, <laughs> I was going to say. I was going to say, it is ridiculous they don't give them a map at any point. Like, I used to have like a student planner, you get your map, you get your timetable, 
Oh, yeah, the student planner. Right. We should make a Hogwarts student planner. (laughs) Oh, I get that. Yeah. I think the thing I definitely related to as well, which is is captured so succinctly in both these chapters, especially later on with with the Snape uh, lesson, is you just take everything so seriously as a kid. It sort of feels like everything is the most important thing ever. And, you know, it's like when Harry loses, what, two house points? It's like, oh, my God, I've let the team. That's that's me done. I'm just going to go back to the Dursleys. I can't hack it. The stakes are incredibly high. Yeah, it's like half one of those little beads that's in like the big vial. It's not even anything. Two points. It's nothing. (laughs) Well, we're kind of indirectly but directly introduced to the two heads of Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw House. We're not told specifically this, but Professor Sprout, right? Herbology teacher. The author refers to her as, quote, a dumpy woman. And I'm wondering, does this set the stage just for more Hufflepuff bashing? Your head of house yeah, a is bit. a dumpy woman. Is It It yeah. could be in a loving way. Well, eh, but, but it's the first time we're meeting her. I mean, if I'm being generous, um, J.K. Rowling's just describing her clothing. Because herbology, you're working with your hands and the dirt. So it's kind of you're just wearing crappy clothing that you don't mind getting dirty. I that was my read. I on think it. it's an American reading to see it as a negative. I think it's just another adjective. From what I'm finding in my, in Google searchings with dictionaries uh, from the Oxford Dictionary, it's it's just supposed to mean short and stout. Yeah, of a person, it's just a way of saying being short and thick in build. Dumpy does read like to me. I know exactly where you guys are coming from. I'm like, <laughs> she's like looks like a dump, you know. But but no, it's uh, I think it's just another way of saying rotund. Is it yeah. definitely that sort of tradition of like Enid Blyton and Roldal, very British sort of broad strokes, mm-hmm. not always positive ways of describing people. But um, yeah, that that feels very. I didn't. I could see that in the Roldal Roldal's writing, for example. But it's not a huge positive, you know, and talking about Hufflepuff being maligned, especially in the earlier books, um, this fits right in with with kind of that that thing. Any inferences you would be making wouldn't be necessarily super positive because we're not being presented with something really awesome Sprout is saying. Right. I mean, we don't really get more about her until the next book. Yeah, right. she has a, so a big role to play. Yep. <laughs> How about uh, Professor Flitwick? Huge fan of Harry's, right, Eric? This is a great... <laughs> He topples over and, and and using the word topple is so funny to just picture this teacher who's like shorter than usual, just like getting so excited by reading Harry's name. He's at the staff table the night before. Presumably he knows Harry Potter's in school, but just reading his name off, taking roll call, getting very excited and just toppling backwards. I'm like, man, I really wish there was more of an opportunity in, in all the books. To get more Harry and Flitwick, uh, you know, communication here. Um, Harry probably would not be a prime Ravenclaw candidate at any point, but I'd still like to see because we know where Flitwick's loyalties lie. I'm thinking about the swamp in, in year five, too. You know, Flitwick is an awesome teacher who we just don't see enough of. So I think that maybe Harry and he should have had a few more scenes together. Would have been neat. I also love how surprised he is. It's sort of the, the toppled over as if he's not. You know, A, known how old Harry is, you <laughs> yeah. know, being sorted like two days earlier. But he's seen him as he come into the classroom. So I'm like, oh my God, Harry Potter, you're here? It, what? Yeah. What's going on? <laughs> he's like a fanboy. It's just like, even though he knew he was coming, he still couldn't 
contain his excitement. Yeah. I guess it is kind of a big moment. I get it. Which, is it the fifth or sixth book? I think after the Quibbler interview, doesn't Flitwick come up with him with like some mice or something as well? Like, he's like some uh, sweets, sweet mice, not not just rats. I, so. <laughs> I had forgotten about He that. does, yeah. yeah. Well, we've met Professor McGonagall already, but this is our first time in her classroom. And I think it's interesting to kind of parallel her or compare her with Snape because they're both very serious in terms of how they go about teaching, but they obviously have two very different styles in terms of how they treat the students. Hermione obviously shines through uh, in this class. It's the first of of many times uh, that we see her do that. Yeah. And I, I just love the characterization of McGonagall, um, you know, <laughs> kind of just being this hard teacher because she's Harry's head of house and like, the, it it just plays really well against Snape, um, you know, because the question is raised whether or not Snape favors his house. It turns out, yes, yes, he very much does. But Harry's like, man, I wish McGonagall uh, would favor Gryffindors as much. She wouldn't have given us all this homework that she did last night. It's just very funny and very like, oh, woe is me. We have homework. But uh, the point I had was that, you know, transfiguration has so far been talked about um, quite a bit in the book so far. And, you know, Hermione's talking about it. She's asking Percy about it, telling Percy that uh, it's her favorite subject that she's most excited to, to, to learn. And, you know, in our first transfiguration lesson, they do indeed have to be uh, transfiguring matchsticks into needles. And so it's interesting how to see transfiguration get sort of the limelight. Other classes like herbology, we just kind of go through, fly through. They don't even say what they're talking about. But with transfiguration, it's always interesting to read about what's being transfigured into something. And yeah, it just, I really thought transfiguration itself would be hugely prominent in this book and in the future books. Yeah. Not, not to go back on what Laura was saying before uh, about kind of the dismissiveness of Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw, but if you look at it, the herbology and the charms class are the ones we, sp- at least initially, spend the least time in. And then it's the Gryffindor head of house in Transfiguration and the Slytherin head of house in Potions that we spend the most time in, in this chapter. Yeah. Well, and at, at this point in the story, I think that's where the emphasis is most important, right? Because you're you're seeing, again, to Eric's point, this great um, contrast between McGonagall and Snape. And the big difference is McGonagall is very stern, but she's also very fair. And Snape is just a bully, and he's extremely unfair. So I think at this point in the story, those characterizations are the ones that are most important to come across, given where we know the book is going. So Professor Quirrell, Defense Against the Dark Arts professor, and uh, we're actually going to do a new segment here that we haven't done before, a fun segment, Mini Origin. That's what you named it, Andrew? Well, I mean, it's Name Origins. Name, right? We're going to start doing name origins in chapter by chapter. Ooh, Ooh, that's... I got chills. I thought the... um, I could hear Eric going, ooh, and I thought that was part of the sound effect. Oh, no, no, that was just just me. Well, got to cite your sources. So this is from MuggleNet, uh, name origin section. And I manage that section 
many, many, many years ago. So it's it's possible I put this entry in. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how good it <laughs> it's is. It's close to your heart. Yeah, it's, it's close, close to, to your my heart. heart. This segment is. But there is a lot to be taken from Quirrell's name, particularly his first name. I don't know that we actually get it in the book, do we? No. This was only ever discoverable uh, by a chocolate frog card, and mm. it might not have even been in print. It might have been just digital only on either jkrowling.com uh, or the trading card game, which I guess was in person. But yeah, this this was kind of a deep cut knowing Quirrell's first name. You could impress your friends in 2005 <laughs> if you knew Professor Quirrell's first name. Yeah, Quirinus. So the name... Quirinus is derived from the words co and viri, meaning of two men. So religious historians have argued that Quirinus and Romulus were originally the same divine entity that was split into a founder slash hero and a god when Roman religion became demythicized. Furthermore, there's a connection between Quirinus and Janus Quirinus, the two-faced god, Janus was the god of both beginnings and endings and was depicted as having one face looking forward while the other watched behind, much like our dear Professor Quirrell. I can't help but just think of that scene in the new Spider-Man where they sort of go Otto Octavius and they just look at each other going, yeah, but what's your real name? <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty much once you know sort of this deep cut, it's it's basically like how Remus Lupin's name in Latin is just Wolfie McWolferton. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you really know, if you really look at it, it's like Quirinus Quirrell was destined to have somebody else's face on the back of his face, on the back of his head. Totally. I think, do you think it was, if the, the writers sort of didn't put it in this book, do you think they might have come up with it later and sort of thrown it in as an Easter egg? Or do you think it was always sort of in the in the world building of, of the first book. I like the idea that it was in the world building just because there's so yeah. much alliteration. Alliterative names are always like super cool to read. They have a special magic unto mm -hmm. themselves. But it doesn't mean that it needed to be there. But I think I think it was. And then the last name, I might have uh, stretched this one out a little bit, but this name was perhaps derived from the word quarrel, which means an angry dispute or argument. It also sounds like Squirrel, a nervous, nut-eating rodent that lives in trees. <laughs> um, it's true that he does act like a scared, shaky man to cover up his allegiance uh, to Voldemort. We see that actually in this chapter. And the name could also be from Quirrellus, meaning full of doubts and questions. So that is the name origin for Quirinus Quirrell. Now let's go to potions. And Andrew, thank you for this um, discussion topic snape is mean <laughs> that was my main takeaway from this chapter we are told in the previous chapter that snape is after quirrell's job so i'm wondering with all the information we have now do we think that snape dislikes teaching potions because it actually reminds him a lot of lily and their relationship um, I don't, I think I disagree with the premise that Snape dislikes teaching potions. If you listen to him talk about bottling fame and stoppering death and all this stuff, he loves potions. He is a little bit too into potion making. Okay. Yeah. I can see that. I agree with that. But I think we can also acknowledge that Snape would rather be teaching defense against the dark arts. That's and I, probably yes. I love that this is established so early on in this book. Um, because obviously that becomes very important later on. But Eric, you're totally right. The way Snape 
describes potion making is very romantic. He says, I don't expect you will really understand the beauty of the softly simmering cauldron with its shimmering fumes, the delicate power of liquids that creep through human veins, bewitching the mind, ensnaring the senses. He has definitely romanticized this subject matter, and I think it's in large part due to Lily. Oh. oh, that's beautiful, actually. And sad. And creepy? And creepy. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, so I have a problem with this only because Lily's uh, brilliance at potions is mostly a movieism, isn't it? Does or, it? I mean, Slug, Slughorn tells Harry in book six that his mother was great, but I still think that might even be more so in the. I'm just trying to figure out, like, if we can reverse engineer this to actually say that Snape stayed in his job. Because of his, you know, yeah. fascination with Lily, I think potions are the perfect topic for for Snape uh, because they're patient, they're slow, they're kind of morbid. It's exactly his energy, exactly his energy to be down in the dungeons with the pickled animals. Yeah, and, and to that point, you know that there's going to be plenty of opportunities for him to like, well, the way that he does it, like criticize his students because. There's mm-hmm. so many ingredients. There's so many steps to everything that needs to be done in order for it to be done the right way. It's, it's probably like going to summer camp for him. <laughs> no, that's a great point. I mean, even he tortures Neville in this first cl- lesson with, uh, oh, you put the quills in while the fire was still in the cauldron. You're stupid boy. It's like, well, listen, like if nobody's followed a recipe list like ever in their life and now it comes down to and not to mention the stakes couldn't be higher you get boils all over your face if you screw this stuff up like this is awful no wonder people don't like this subject well yeah this is a very technical class but you could say this about any class at hogwarts for first years it's all brand new to them especially if you're like harry or another student who didn't have magical parents. So I just, the the treatment is is really just down to Snape choosing to be this way. I agree. And to circle back and talk about why Snape is in this job and why he remains here, there's also an element of where else is this guy going to get a job? Mm -hmm. Let's be real. He is a former Death Eater. Not to say that that necessarily prevents you from getting jobs. Clearly, some of them work at the ministry, but he's also just horrible to work with. He's a miserable human being. Nobody likes the guy. Where else is he going to work except for the place where Dumbledore finds him most useful? Oh, this we need like a top 10 alternate jobs for (laughs) Snape and like Photoshop him into like air traffic controller. Uh, oh my god well wait a minute there is that guy who looks like snape at the this went viral at the airport that's like the the gate agent who's like boarding plane 394 (laughs) he needs to work at the crusty crab just like squidward because i always think of uh squidward and snape being the same character that's great oh very good in terms of the treatment of harry in this chapter it is absolutely awful when harry has a little cheek with snape about asking hermione the question instead of him i was actually surprised that snape didn't freak out more than he did in that moment because if i were snape in this moment i would have a flashback to james 
all of a sudden, and I would have blown a gasket. I would have been so pissed off. So it's I'm almost impressed by how Snape controlled himself in this moment. Well, he already got a few blows in, right? He he had said he did. Harry Potter, our new celebrity. Tut tut, fame clearly isn't everything. It's like every time he asks him a question, he has a dig ready to go. Thought you wouldn't open a book before coming, eh, Potter? And then you mentioned the Neville situation earlier. He says, you, Potter, why didn't you tell him not to add the quills? Thought he'd make you look good if he got it wrong. Yeah, that's that's completely unfair. Yeah. Do you think Snape like prepped all of these insults the summer ahead of Harry coming? (laughs) He's got a little notebook at home. Just go through them. Yeah. Well, like he knows Harry's coming to Hogwarts this year, right? Like, obviously, he knows when Harry's coming of age to come to school. He knows to expect him. And he's just been biding his time being like, I am gonna I'm so show. Excited. Yeah, I am gonna show that kid who's boss. I'm glad you say it that way. It is about power here. It is about how yep. Snape has all of the power. Harry, as a first day in potion student, has none of the power. And because often when facing off against James Potter, Snape, they were maybe on even even footing, or Snape was an unpopular kid, so he had much less power. This is Snape's revenge entirely. And and he's been planning this for a very long time. Even if not specific insults, this is why Snape should never be a teacher, is because he relishes the power and the hold he has over these students and wields it as a violent weapon. Absolutely. Then isn't it quite funny that Harry has no idea who Snape is at this point? He's yeah. almost, <laughs> it's just some annoying right. That is also the perfect... <laughs> he's like, he's like why guy? do you hate me so yeah. much? You're right. <laughs> he even tries to get some information out of Hagrid later on in the chapter, and it just completely doesn't work out in his favor. Yeah, I love I love that. Ugh. Yeah, I mean, Snape makes a point of calling Harry out at every opportunity, and even asking him questions he knows he wouldn't have the answer to. And I- part of me wondered with that, we know Snape is a legilimens. Was he... Because there, there's moments in this chapter where it talks about how like Harry is staring straight into Snape's eyes. I'm wondering, is Snape doing a little bit of mind reading, trying to get a sense, what does Harry know? What can I ask him that he's not going to have the answer to? Wow. Or does he just think Harry's an idiot and he doesn't know anything because he grew up with the Dursleys? Could be a mix of both, I think. Yeah. <laughs> you don't see anybody else raising their, their hand. The only reason anybody knows the answers to these questions is because Hermione's in the room and she has read the book. Yeah. Which was not expected of them. Oh, especially not of Muggleborns. Yeah. Or or anybody who grew up without a wizarding family. You wouldn't have just like the standard book of potions, uh, you know. In- well, yeah. And it's like, what? how am I going to spend the final weeks of my summer reading my school books before school starts? Hell no. Right. Well, going back to Micah's point, um, something that I thought was really interesting about this. Did y'all ever in school have a teacher that you just felt like had eyes in the back of their head? You couldn't do anything. Nothing got past them. If their back was turned and you were pulling some stuff, they knew. They always seemed to know. And I wonder if for Snape, that is his legitimacy. Oh, yeah. Like, I think with the Neville example, you know, he wasn't there when Neville misstepped with his potions ingredients, but he immediately knew what the problem was, which you could say, well, Snape is a very accomplished potions master. So right, of course that's my he would answer know. for that. Or you could say, 
maybe he is using his power, you know, to manipulate his students into thinking, well, how does this guy know everything? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's a good angle. I think you want to seem omniscient as a teacher because, again, it, you, you retain your power that way. Um, but, yeah, just looking at the Half-Blood Prince book and knowing that you can, you know, crush these sprouts with your knife instead of chopping them to make a better potion. He knows exactly what went wrong with everybody's potion at every instance because he's seen it a million ways. He's that good at potions. I think there's something to be said because uh, I, I think this is because of the films. We forget how young Snape is as well, like especially compared to the other teachers. They're all meant to be like, what, in their 50s at least? Sort of good, whereas Snape's meant to be, what, his early 30s, mid-30s at this point? Yeah. So I sort of wonder if there's a bit of, from Snape's perspective, he's like, well, I need to, you know, he's the youngest teacher in theory. He needs to prove himself a bit more and, you know, throw his weight around. That is one of the most interesting angles I think we don't often take because of the excellent casting of Alan Rickman as Snape. The age, the age really is younger. He's supposed to be Sirius and Remus's age and, and trying to marry the two concepts and actually think of Snape as this youthful teacher that needs to prove himself does change the reading a little bit. And Rowan, I like your point here about Snape's eyes um, being referenced like tunnels, because I think it says a lot about him and his personality. Like he's just this dark, empty individual. Listening to like the Stephen Fry audio books in the UK, I always think that line sort of, yeah, his eyes were dark, reminded Harry of, of long, dark tunnels. I just think you, you get the character in what, three three words or something. It's so brilliant. And I love the contrast to Hagrid here, right? Because he notes that Hagrid's eyes are just as dark, but that Snape's eyes lack the warmth that Hagrid um, communicates through through his eyesight. So very interesting comparisons. Hagrid's a hugger, and I don't think Snape's a hugger, is he? Yeah, no, I don't I don't think Snape's much of a hugger. <laughs> well, we didn't think Voldemort was a hugger either. And <laughs> <laughs> To wrap this up, Laura, you mentioned Hagrid, and we see both Harry and Ron go to Hagrid's uh, for the first time. And this sets up a series of trips to Hagrid's throughout the course of the series. And to me, it's always seen as this place of refuge. And I'm curious, did we ever have a place that we could go to when we were at school where we felt safe? Or did we have a teacher we could visit when things weren't necessarily going our way? Because certainly after the experience that Harry has in Snape's class, this is a nice kind of getaway for him. Yeah. You know, what I used to do, and I wonder if anyone else here did this, I would go visit my old teachers from like previous grades. Yeah, because at that point, they're not your teacher anymore. So you can just talk like people and, you know, they can be there to be a support and a guide and a mentor. I definitely remember going to a trusted former teacher and confiding about some issues that I was having in school and her being able to give me some really good advice that probably she wouldn't have been able to speak so plainly with me when she was my direct teacher. Right. So that was always that's an interesting, very comfortable angle. I remember being in class and other upperclassmen who had had my teacher before would walk into our class during class. (laughs) and just hang out (laughs) it was kind of a weird situation being not the older you know student that's walking in for comfort but yeah like the relationships that are changing in old classrooms used to go to there was a lot of that for sure as far as seeking refuge or the guidance office or the library 
uh, once we started getting older and having free periods, that was that really opened up the school. That felt so cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was deeply involved in my TV tech program, and I had a very close relationship with my TV tech teacher. And I lived in that TV tech studio before school, lunch. I never ate lunch in the lunchroom in the cafeteria. I was living in the TV tech room. Well, and look at you now, podcast mogul. And look at me now. Media extraordinaire. That teacher recently called me his favorite student on Facebook because we happened to run into each other a couple months ago. Other alumni weren't happy about that. Oh, my God. They were just jealous. They were just jealous. Some odds and ends from this chapter. Andrew, you have a really good one. Yeah, so a funny smell hung around Quirrell's turban. <laughs> it was like, oh God, what is going on under there? I'm imagining it, imagining it smelling bad because of Voldemort's breath or something. <laughs> he hasn't brushed, brushed his, his like non-existent teeth. Well, how, yeah. how's he gonna do that? How's he gonna brush? Right, right. His teeth? And like you know, he's obviously just living on the back of Quirrell's head. So what is he's like? It, is Quirrell bathing? Like, what is going on? <laughs> it must be abysmal. That sounds like a sitcom. Just <laughs> right. for the, the HBO Max. Max that! Quirrell with two toothbrushes, one for himself, one for Voldemort. He's like, oh my. Quirrell, no, not the not the baking soda, not the... Tea. He's like, listen, being the Dark Lord is no excuse for poor dental hygiene. This is making me want to vomit like I'm Laura entering the sixth grade. Mm. This is just <laughs> disgusting. I'd, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall in the meeting they had, though, where Voldemort was like, so Quirrell, I want to be on the back of your head. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> back of your head. R- really? Uh, yeah? All right. I wonder what the conversation about, you know, hiding Voldemort looked like, too. They were like, well, I could, I guess I could wear a hat. Uh, no, a turban. <laughs> and I wonder how Voldemort felt about that. If <laughs> He was like, no. I think Voldemort suggested turban. He was like, right, I want a purple turban, okay? <laughs> It does seem on brand. (laughs) Some good setup in this chapter. Some nice little Easter eggs. Notably, um, Snape asks Harry about the bazaar. Harry does not know what that is at this point, but it certainly comes in handy in book six. So again, more foreshadowing. Uh, We also get a mention of uh, when they're talking about uh, Filch and how he knows all of Hogwarts' secret passageways. Um, the Weasley twins are noted to also um, be very much familiar with them. Uh, and we know that that certainly comes into play with the map and in Prisoner of Azkaban. And then I know we didn't talk a lot about this, but it is mentioned uh, when they're at Hagrid's about the break-in at Gringotts. Harry wants some more information, but Hagrid's not willing to uh, to give anything up to him at this point. Maybe if he had, you know, Another drink or two, he would have spilled some tea, but uh, that did not uh, end up happening. And then Rowan, bring us home here. You have a a really good point, and I don't know how we missed this. I have a big point here. This is crack crack this case open. I mean, they get Friday afternoons off. Like, come on, what is this school? Um, <laughs> I mean, the private schools I know in the UK they generally do classes on Saturday mornings as well. So. My big point here is ultimately in the previous chapter, we've already said Dumbledore loves music. So if only they had a bit of time in the schedule to let them do some music or sport or, I don't know, community. I I was listening to the last week's episode. I know you were asking about sort of like free places or do do people pay to go to school in the UK? Um, And I think a lot of private schools in the UK are charities. So effectively, they, they are exempt from tax or they pay less tax for various reasons. But in 
in order to do that, they have to do lots of extracurricular activities. And so students will go and volunteer with charities and other organisations. So why aren't Hogwarts doing that? Um, and so overall, my effect is this very much feels like uh, the UK government attitude to like the arts over the last couple of years, where it's like, oh, we love music, we love we love theatre, we love t- film, TV, Netflix. But wait, what? You want us to like put time into the schedule to do it? No, why would we do that? What's going on? <laughs> you want us to teach all this stuff? No. Yeah. It's kind of like here in America, some um, places of work will offer like summer Fridays where the employees can get off a little early because it's summer. I want to head to the beach early or something. Yeah, that never works. I'm just going to – as somebody who has had summer Fridays, yeah, it, those are tough to uh, dip out at 1 o'clock. Actually get because you're so busy. You're so busy. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it makes the rest of the week a lot harder too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's like people talk – this is a whole other discussion, but the four-day work week. Like, look, sounds good to me, but that just means I got to work harder those other four days. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't – I don't know if that's going to work for me. So good thing we shortened up uh, to two chapters this week. Right. (laughs) (laughs) We're not done yet. Let's do the MVP of the week. I'm going to do a most valuable chapter award and I'm going to give it to the Sorting Hat chapter. I mean, that's an incredibly important chapter and an, an incredibly important moment in the lives of all these students. So shout out to you, Sorting Hat chapter and Shout out to the Sorting Hat as well. I'm also going to do a most valuable chapter, and I'm giving it to the other chapter we discussed today, the Potions Master. There is so much laid out in this chapter that becomes incredibly important later on in the series. And again, I think it's masterfully written because you're intended to believe that it's all first day of school stress, imposter syndrome, feeling like Harry doesn't belong in this world, when actually there's a lot happening under the surface. I'm going to give it to all of those characters uh, that Rowan mentioned that uh, never show up again in the Harry Potter series. <laughs> oh, but, oh, that's good. But they kept their head down. are doing the work behind the scenes to make things uh, still run smoothly. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to give it to Professor Flitwick for the MVP. Because unlike Snape, who wants to have all the power, I think it's important every once in a while to fanboy your own students. So good for good for Flitwick giving Harry the whole ah! and falling backwards. And then uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna give mine to Percy actually. Because obviously Percy perhaps rightfully gets a lot of hate most of the time, but especially in the Sorting Hat chapter, we've not mentioned it, but he does take on Peeves and does quite a good job of getting him out of the way. True. So I've got, you know, got some respect for Percy and being nice to Hermione and giving some good advice, I'd say. Awesome. If you have any feedback about today's discussion, you can email MuggleCast at gmail.com or you can use the contact form on MuggleCast.com. You can also send a voice message. Just record it using the voice memo app on your phone and then email us that file or give us a call 1920-3-MUGGLE. That's 1920-368-4453. Get that feedback in. And now, because next week's episode is a Muggle Mail episode. All right, it's time for some Quizage. Last week's question, from which vault number does Hagrid retrieve the Philosopher's slash Sorcerer's Stone? The correct answer was Vault 713. And a lot of people submitted the correct answer, including Andrea, Andrew and Pat's number one shipper, Barry Otter, Brock, Boobatooper Puss, Buff Daddy, Cassius Dumbledore, Forrest the nine-year-old, 
Funny Folk in the Hogshead, Greta Letta, Kelsey, McCalla, Morgan, Pearl II, Salty Slytherin, Sir King of Kings, The Chosen Taco, Ravenclaw from Nebraska, and Un- You Can Call Me Out. <laughs> I have a couple comments. The Chosen Taco is the cheesy gordita crunch at uh, Taco Bell. Yes, yes. And Forrest, the nine-year-old, is why we don't curse on this program. Yeah, we're, it was all for you, Forrest. <laughs> uh, so for next week's question, we actually have... So this is this is the hardest question I think I've ever devised. Oh. Um, and so I've, I've written specifically, this is going to be for a thousand Quizich points, and that is going to be redeemable for a stuffed badger at our next live show, uh, whenever <laughs> that occurs. Uh, so, okay. a, a real badger or a, like a stuffed toy? <laughs> not a taxidermied badger. According to book one, if you're in the Great Hall facing the Hogwarts staff table, from left to right, what is the order in which the Hogwarts houses are seated? Who's on the far left if you're facing the Hogwarts table? Who's next and who's in the right? This is called out in the first book. It is not at all how it is in the movies. And the movies have wrecked my brain on this. So when I read it in the book, I'm like, wait, they're where? Oh. So give me the four Hogwarts houses, what order they're seated at in the Great Hall, according to the book couple other reminders. Make sure you're following the show for free in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And leave us a review if they allow you to. And don't forget to follow MuggleCast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And Rowan, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great having you. Thanks so much for asking me on. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, you were perfect. You fit right in. Uh, Anything you want to plug? uh, Instagram or anything else, maybe? I'm awful on Instagram, but you can follow me if you really want to. Uh, I'm mainly on Twitter, Rowan underscore go to bed. um, And then you can see my sort of links and stuff through there. But I'm I'm not going to plug anything because... Uh, it's so sort of specific to the southwest at the moment okay uh, you know just, <laughs> I, I wouldn't expect you guys to be flying over to see me in plays or, or whatever but hopefully sometime soon oh i'd love to all right well yeah we'll follow you on social media and and keep up to date there so that does it for this week's episode of MuggleCast. i'm andrew i'm eric i'm micah i'm laura and i'll be rowan bye everyone bye y'all bye